Well, hey there, everyone. This is Risky Business, and I'm Patrick Gray. And we've got plenty of news to get through this week, and we'll be diving right into that with CyberCX's Adam Boileau in just a moment. And then we're going to hear from Grey Noises founder, Andrew Morris, in this week's sponsor interview. And uh, yeah, it's Andrew being Andrew. It's a fantastic conversation about what he and his team are doing to build a global network of sensors that can be used to do all sorts of cool stuff. Um, and uh, yeah, he's got a really interesting anecdote in there as well about some work they did in Ukraine to disrupt and frustrate, uh, let's just call them an attacker. Uh, let's just go with that. Keep it a little vague. Um, and yeah, I let that interview run long because it's great. So do stick around for it. But right now it's time for a check of the week's news with Adam Boileau. And Adam, first up, I regret to inform you that we're going to be talking a little bit about large language models. <laughs> no, I, I'll struggle through. I'll struggle no. Through. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, Rob, Rob Joyce uh, did a uh, appearance at RSA and was asked a bunch of questions about large language models and, and, and gave some really interesting responses, I think. Yeah, much like me, I guess, uh, Rob is feeling the, you know, the amount of conversation around large language, language models. Uh, he said you can't walk around RSA without talking about AI and malware. And uh, in fact, here we are. And like, there's a bunch of options for how to use AI. And NSA's opinions seem to line up with, you know, most of us that there are some avenues for using AI, you know, in attacker-centric ways. There's some avenues for using it in defensive ways. And then there's all of this, uh, you know, threads that we are going to learn to pull about how to poison AI models and give them weird training data or ask them weird questions or, you know, use tricks, you know, like we've seen, uh, you know, with ChatGPT to make it pretend to be something else or do something else or prompt them in ways that were unexpected. So I guess in some sense, I'm quite glad the NSA doesn't have some crazy other different idea uh, for what we're going to see AI is used for um, in large language models in particular uh, in the security field. But uh, I'm also just very over talking about them. <laughs> well, I mean, I think that's because we've just been flooded by a million takes, right? And, and I think now that we've had a bit of time to actually think about this, like what it means for us is starting to become a bit clearer. One of the silly takes, in my opinion, that we've seen floating around is that large language models are going to generate an endless stream of O'Day and we're all ruined. And... First of all, like it hasn't really been shown that you can no. just extract O'Day from a um, from a large language model. But even if you could, it sort of reminds me of like, you know, you think back to the days when fuzzing was kind of new, right? All of a sudden, there were all of these fuzzing frameworks spitting out really serious bugs. And I don't think anyone at that time was saying we're all ruined. It was just more along the case, uh, it was more the case that, you know, people who make software should maybe also use these things to find bugs to patch them before they make it into production, which is what happened. And I think, you know, there's an equalizing effect here and we're going to see the same thing happen. If this stuff turns out to be useful in O'Day research, it's going to be useful in defensive research as well. Yeah, absolutely. And if anything, I think, you know, there's probably more hope for using AI and you know, language models uh, in a defensive context. Like, to my mind, the case for defensive use just seems stronger because more access to data, longer times to worry about, you know, doing training, more product-specific stuff. Whereas using it offensively is, yeah, I, I feel like there's less options there. It doesn't seem like a great doesn't seem like an like, amazing tool in the way that, say, you know, talk about fuzzing the AFL was. And the real breakthrough in AFL was, you know, the coverage model rather than the fuzzing part itself. Um, but, yeah, like, it's just going to be so interesting because, uh, I mean, the, the... Well, because we don't quite know yet. Because right? we don't quite know yet. It's exciting, right, in, in <laughs> yeah. a way. Right? We don't know how we're going to use these tools and we haven't really well understood what it means. I mean, from, the thing that worries me about 
uh, you know, machine learning in general in defensive systems is that as an attacker, if the thing you're looking at is non-deterministic because there's an AI like probabilistic element in how the behavior of the system changes, then it does make like doing black box security research quite hard mm. because you're used to being able to model the system as deterministic instead and of the system the modeling inputs. you <laughs> instead of the system modeling you right yeah. which you know yeah and that that to me you know breaks so much troubleshooting uh, or so much you know the sorts of the mental techniques we use in black box vuln discovery or understanding a network layout or whatever it is you know it's, yeah. it's, it's much the same when everyone load balanced everything all of a sudden you know you're talking to probabilistically one machine out of you know 17 in a pool of servers and you have to kind of factor that into how you work with you know the way that you're trying to hack or whatever it is so yeah it's a it's gonna be a hell of a ride yeah it is it is i mean one thing's for sure and i think uh, rob flagged this as well which is inauthentic content is just going to yes. explode and i think that's you know got some people are talking that about a disinformation thing i just think it's going to be a mess right like that side of it we're just going to be flooded with content created by some of these models uh rob did flag a very valid use case here which was like obfuscation right you can feed it your malware and say please rewrite this and that's going to give you something that looks quite different uh to, to a lot of defenses so i think that's an interesting use case but ultimately i think these models are going to be just sensational productivity tools, right? And I think that's the part where they're going to be revolutionary. And look, just on that whole idea of, you know, uh, AI as a, as a uh, productivity booster, uh, Palantir has come out with probably the creepiest example of, uh, of, uh, of uh, how this can be used in, uh, in the, to boost productivity, right? Yeah, so they're, they're touting uh, their artificial intelligence platform, which is, you know, a set of software that for their customers allows them to integrate language models, you know, LLMs and other AI kinds of things into their workflows and dealing with the kind of complexities that Palantir customers have, you know, data sets that the AI has to learn from that have classification or secrecy requirements or, or those, those kinds of things, plus good logging and the ability to kind of explain uh, what's going on with the language model and they have a video that they put out you know kind of showing off this platform and as you say one of the examples was particularly on the nose perhaps uh, which was an example of, of a language model um leading an operator uh through some like military situation so they've you know some troops amassing on the border and the language model recommends that you know, we dispatch them and, uh, you know, it provides options for counterattacking and so on and so forth. And it's all just, a, especially from Palantir, uh, a little bit creepy sounding, but also... Yeah, it's like, imagine imagine if Clippy can dispatch Apache gunships, right, is the vibe here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, Would you like also, to add an AC-130 gunship to your document, yeah, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, on the other hand, you know, these things are going to be used one way or the other and better that they are used in a way that's been kind of thought through, um, you know, how to use them in this kind of context in a way that's auditable, auditable and et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, either though, Palantir just gives me the creeps. Yeah, uh, I mean, it gives everyone the creeps, right? But you can't deny that it's useful, and well, that's the well, problem. And, that's the problem. Yes, and I mean, but. you look at you look at everything that it does in this, and all it's doing is is helping humans make decisions faster, and that you know ties into what I was saying about productivity, right? Like leading someone through. Well, here are your options. What next? And just constructing the playbook and everything. It's look, it's interesting. I've linked through to an article in Vice about that, um, and there's a Twitter thread on it. That's really interesting that I've linked through to uh, as well. Now, look, my favorite story uh, without question this week 
is about a mysterious hacker doing stuff on the blockchain, Adam. Now, uh, Catalan <laughs> Kimpanu, our colleague, uh, he flagged this in Slack the other day. Uh, Chainalysis published a blog post on this and then they removed it, which was a bit mm. weird, but it looks like maybe because they were giving it as an exclusive story to Coindesk or something and maybe that blog post will reappear. But basically someone took control of a bunch of Russian intelligence-related Bitcoin uh, uh, wallets and started doxing them by sending a bunch of transactions around while burning some of that Bitcoin and inserting like, you know, comments in the fields to indicate, well, this wallet belongs to GIU, this one to FSB and, uh, and whatnot. And um, even I think at some point after the invasion started last year, started stealing the Bitcoin and sending it to like uh, wallets that were raising money, uh, sending it to addresses that were raising money for Ukraine's war efforts. So, but it's just a fascinating story. Walk us through it. So yeah, somebody seems to have uh, taken control of the private keys for a number of wallets uh, relating to Russian intelligence operations, like 800-ish wallets. Uh, and then back before the invasion of Ukraine, they just put a bunch of transactions on the blockchain that, uh, you know, as you say, had comment fields or comments that explained what the transactions were for. And uh, they're, they're what's called like uh, op return transactions. So the actual on the blockchain transactions are, is a series of like scripting language instructions. And return is basically invalidate this transaction and get on with your life kind of thing. And that kind of costs money. And they, the one of the things that Chainalysis calls out is that they burnt something like 300,000 US dollars worth of Bitcoin making these transactions, which... Yeah, you know, so they basically cost them 300K while doxing them, which is amazing. The, well, and it was well, it is, was 986, I think, num the number of wallets. Yeah, so yeah, they managed to burn lot. 300K just by like, look at me, I'm a Russian intelligence service. <laughs> and there is some crossover in uh, some of the wallets that were doxed in this way that had already been identified as you know being operated by the SVR or the GOU or whoever. So there's quite a lot of reasons to, to you know, sort of take it on face value that that is actually what they are, um, which is very funny. And as you say, then the pivot to giving money to Ukrainians uh, after the war kicked off, you know, also also kind of funny. But uh, it, I, I don't know, it's just, you've you got to wonder who did that. And it's just very stylishly done. <laughs> it is. It's done with a little bit of flair, isn't it? So yes, you wonder yeah. you wonder how on earth any of this happened, right? Like how did they get the private keys? How did they think, you know? And you would hope they had good OPSEC, you know, and, and, and I guess the level of OPSEC that they would need would depend on where they're located, like. Well, yeah, exactly, know? right? Because you don't want to be sitting at your desk, you know, in uh, Dzinski Square or whatever, you know, yeah. sending off their money and, uh, and doxing them because that would not go well for you. And if this was uh, an intelligence op, like if, or, if, or a military op on behalf of the West um, and the person <laughs> is listening to us, like, i got to say, hat off to you. This is pretty yeah. cool. We do, in fact, got to hand it to you because that's yeah. pretty... <laughs> yeah. Absolutely no question, got to hand it to him. Uh, yes. Kim Zetta has been churning out the SolarWinds content this week for Wired. She's got two pieces up. Uh, one is a deep dive and a, and a you know real inside look at uh, at the entire SolarWinds incident. Uh, and another one was just a news piece that, uh, that popped up uh, before that one uh, that said the DOJ actually detected the intrusion six months before it sort of became news, but they, no one really quite put together that it was part of this like broader uh, supply chain compromise. But, um, you know, Kim doing what Kim's great at, which is really taking a deep look at an incident and, uh, you know, writing out and putting on record what actually happened, which is, um, it's a great bit of history now documented. 
Yeah, I mean, she's kind of like a one-woman cyber cybersecurity safety board, you know, safety review review board uh, with the level of detail and depth and stuff. And it's just it's a great read uh, because of many of the of our listeners, you know, will have been involved in incidents. But you know, it's when you sit down, you know, you can just like imagining what it would have been like to be in the room when they figure out you know, actually how this is you know, supply chain attack. This is coming out of SolarWinds. It is actually legitimately signed by them and it is in the legit download, like the things you can download from SolarWinds.com right now. Like The Houston, that, we have a problem moment. Yes. Yeah, yeah like everyone loves, well, I know I do. I, I love a good catastrophe. Um, and yeah, just reading it uh, is, it makes me feel a lot for those people who uh, had late night phone calls and, you know, worked so very hard unraveling this. And, um, you know, I'm sure there will be more to come on this story because it is just such a, such an interesting and you know, you know supply chains are things we have talked about for a long time and have been done on the quiet but the Solowins campaign was just so big uh, yeah and yeah it's nice to see you know really cogent well-written you know thorough summary you know in you know in a form factor you can read over lunch break so yeah yeah well, in, a, in, a, in a way that's enjoyable right like that's yes the, yeah exactly that's the yes. key here um, and look, speaking of supply chains uh, of a different kind Americold which is a you know f- uh, cold Refrigerated and frozen logistics real estate investment trust in in the United States, which is actually a big one. Um, they've had some sort of cyber incident that affected operations. I just wanted to mention that briefly because this is a you know this is a critical sector, food distribution and whatnot. I mean, every week we exclude so many ransomware attacks and breaches from our discussion in the news. But, you know, someone going after a cold storage company, uh, a cold storage giant uh, in the United States is a pretty big deal. Yeah, I mean, this reminded me of the, you know, uh, Colonial Pipeline in a way. Like, these are critical infrastructure, supply chain services that are very specialised. And, you know, any disruption, especially something perishable, you know, cold storage, etc., you know, that just it has the potential to be really big uh, yeah. and affect people in ways that they don't expect from computers, I suppose. Yeah, so they've announced that to the SEC and, uh, you know, I mean, it may be under control by now, but, like, let's see, right? Because... Like the Royal Mail, oh, everything's fine. Everything's yeah, fine, yeah. and it and was not six fine. Six months later, and it was yeah. not fine. Yeah, yeah. Look, a friend of mine here, he uh, he sent uh, an item uh, through his business to the UK um, in mid March, and it's still sitting in in, in, in customs. Uh, there was a there was a one month gap in the tracking from when it left Australia to when it popped up in the Royal Mail systems <laughs> over there. So I think they're still. I don't know. Either Royal Mail's just terrible, or they're still having problems related to that attack. Yeah. Well, why not both? Why not? Yeah. Uh, CISA has, uh, is soliciting public comment on its software security attestation form and they've actually published it and people are dissing it. But to be honest, I, I, you know, I've thumbed through it and it looked pretty good. What did you make of this, Adam? Uh, you know, the yeah. idea is that software providers will have to fill in this form uh, if, they wanna, if they want government procurers to be able to, you know, tick the box and, and buy their stuff. Yeah, I mean, I had a glance through it and, you know, like much compliance stuff, it's not super prescriptive or super detailed, but it does. It checks know, off the big are, stuff, right? Like, yes, it does, right? And, I mean, you can, of course, you can weasel self-attestation or, you know, having to, you know, do self-compliance and stuff. Of course, you can weasel it, but it's your name that's signing the weaseling. Uh, and, you know, that still counts for something, even if it's not super, super duper thorough. And in ways, you know, like if you look at something like PCI DSS, for example, which can be, you know, overly prescriptive in places, you know, you kind of have to have enough room in these things to cover a very wide gamut of things. And yet still, you know, like it seemed fine to me. I don't see what people were whinging about, TBH. Yeah, yeah. And I, what I like about it is it covers stuff like, you know, are you using static 
are you doing static analysis to find bugs in your software? Which like, geez, you know, like it's very well and good for you and me to sit here and think, well, of course, major software vendors are doing that, but not all of them do, not. you know, no. and it's, and it's nuts. <laughs> so having that, that's good. And, and the yes. other thing that I found interesting about this is a lot of the questions are about the development environment in which the software was created, right? Like, and, and they're clearly worried about supply chain risk. Like, are you doing logging or do you use multi-factor authentication for your staff and, and, and this sort of thing. And I just thought, hey, that's great. And this is a starting point, right? Like once you've got people used to having to do this, this sort of work, you can add new things to those lists. Yeah, and it was certainly, you know, calling back to Kim Zetta's piece on SolarWinds, like the lack of, of logging going back far enough to be useful, uh, you know, was a pretty common thread that ran through that story. One of the anecdotes she has in there is kind of how they found a, um, a an image of a virtual machine used during the automated build process that had been like snapshot because it had a particular error in it and just by some miracle hadn't been deleted. And so that's, they originally you know, found the backdoor being put in place just kind of out of luck rather than out of good logging, good thinking. So yeah, yeah it was a, yeah, it was a theme that was woven through it in a bunch of places. I don't think the attestation form that says, do you use logs? He's going to quite get a, you know, solve no, that problem. I mean, but, you no, know. but at least it's inspired by actual events. No, no, I get nice it, I get it, I get it. The security I'm, industry. I'm with you, I'm with you. Um, the Department of Homeland <laughs> Security is asking Congress to formally establish the Cyber Safety Review Board, uh, which is a good thing because, you know, the CSRB was established via an executive order, doesn't really have much funding and whatnot. And like, there's a push to make it a, you know, more formally established thing with funding and subpoena powers and things like yeah. that. What's been interesting is seeing the way people have criticised the cyber, you know, cyber incident, what is it called? Cyber Safety Review Board, right? People have been criticising it because it hasn't had these things. And, you know, the response people like Dmitry Alperovich have had, like he's on the the board, has been, well, look, we're just getting started, you know, like give us a, give us a minute and it's <laughs> going to be things like this that turn it into something that has more teeth. Although, you know, someone points out in this article that the NTSB has these subpoena powers, but they never have to use them because there's just that expectation that people are expected to, to cooperate, right? And once you have the subpoena powers, you don't need to use them. Because people know you haven't. <laughs> <laughs> and also, an airline culture is pretty well adapted to incident reviews. And like they've had a long time mm. to get that process right. And, you know, we are still very much a young industry, uh, you know, in the cybers. And we need to be spanked around a little more, perhaps, uh, than aerospace does. Yeah. Uh, John Grieg over at uh, The Record has a write-up here saying that we're finally going to see that uh, really controversial United Nations cybercrime treaty. Uh, this June. Now, this is a treaty that's been in the works for years. And the reason it's controversial is because the UN starts hammering out what an international, you know, cybercrime treaty should look like. And then, you know, Russia and China jump on board and you're thinking, great, this is really fantastic. We've got these countries also contributing to, you know, cybersecurity norms and cybercrime norms uh, around the world. And they said, yes, we should absolutely do this, uh, uh, get involved in this treaty so that we can punish people for doing things like saying mean things about dear leader on the internet, right? And we're like, hey, wait, what? That's not what we meant. Yeah. Um, so that's why it's been mired in controversy. But we're, we're finally going to get to see it in June. And that's good. Yeah, that's good. But anything that is going to improve law enforcement cooperation and improve you know, the investigation of, of cybercrime across national boundaries, which is clearly needed, is going to be good. But it is hard when you're trying to get consensus from so many you know, stakeholders and, and you know, such a large group that I don't know, the proof will be in the pudding and people have to actually want to cooperate regardless of whether or not 
you know, there is a particular document describing what they should do, they still got to actually want to do it. Yeah, yeah. Well, and not want to use it to do horrible, you know, human rights abusing <laughs> things too, yes, which I think yes. has been more the issue with yeah. this one, which is like this is this looks like a great international treaty for stamping out Winnie the Pooh gifts that mock <laughs> G, you know. Um, but you know, we'll we'll get to see it soon. And yeah. I, what I'm expecting is they'll just gut it and water it down to the bare yeah. minimum, and you know, that'll be that. Now, Adam, this week we saw the first uh, rapid security fix for uh, Apple software being pushed out by the company. Uh, you know, I installed it yesterday, but the, the idea is this is a type of patch which doesn't always require a reboot and things like that. Although for this one, it did, which I kind of think is is funny where they're like, look, we've got this new type of patch that doesn't require a system reboot. And we're going to demonstrate that with our first one, which does require a system <laughs> <laughs> reboot. Um <laughs> But obviously, you know, this is this is an improvement in the way that Apple can deploy security patches. And I think, you know, it's a sign of things to come. I think we need software companies and platform companies really thinking about how they can uh, better deploy patches to user devices in a way that's less disruptive, uh, in a way that's more invisible to the user. And this is movement in that direction. So that's great. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because, the, you know, one of the criticisms of Apple's you know, security patching and, and their approach to it uh, and that this particular approach to patching is meant to address, you know, is largely because of security concerns, right? I mean, the the thing that makes this the rapid security update versus usual is that a whole bunch of the system software on both macOS and, and iOS uh, are in kind of authenticated, signed, you know, cryptographically secured containers and they have to regenerate a whole bunch of hash information when they patch them and so on. And so this has... Um, they've been working on changes to the operating system to move the things that are most likely to get patched kind of out to the side uh, so they can do them faster and, and more easily. But it's funny because you know, this was from a security concern, but it's security concerns from, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, where, you know, malware and the operating system modifications, to the operating system were of particular concern. But now things like, you know, getting Safari updates out fast is kind of more important than those controls were, uh, you know, back many years ago. So it's, you know, great work from Apple to get this to a point where they can use it on everything. And the fact that they pushed out the first one and didn't brick anything is pretty great. Now, oh, now we're going to talk about an Iranian campaign. And this one's interesting, right? Because there's so much focus when we talk about spyware and spy tools, right? Uh, particularly for mobile devices. Uh, you know, so much of the conversation is focused on remote code ex execution, right? And like, oh, one click or no click RCE. And that's the, you know, that's the big bad thing we've all got to worry about. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, but, you know, it looks like the Iranian police or at least some sort of Iranian, uh, you know, state security service has been installing uh, some form of spyware on the phones of people that they arrest, like protesters and whatnot. So they've got them in the cells, they grab their phone, they install this spyware uh, on their phones and then they cut them loose. And, and you know, we've got a report here from Lookout that's just seen an insane uptick um, in the use of this spyware. Uh, through the the period of the of the most recent uh, protests in Iran, uh, so it just it just shows you like low tech is 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 good enough uh, depending on where you are. Yeah, exactly. Like if you're in a position where through legal means, you know, the border or wherever it is that you can get physical control of devices, like that's much cheaper than buying zero click you know, remote malware from Israelis that you have to give, well, I guess they're not going to do that in Iran. Um, <laughs> Probably not, mate. Uh, no, somebody yeah. else, like some Cypriot uh, extensions of the Israelis. Um, yeah. But yeah, so Lookout got access to data from some of the C2 servers and were able to map where initial infection was occurring and then you know, geolocated on a map, turns out to be near 
you know, various, uh, you know, police or, or government entity offices uh, in Iran. So, like, that makes a pretty compelling story for physical access installation. We have seen physical access to install stuff used before, like, I mean, in the case of um, uh, Uyghur Muslims in China, for example, it's from reports that, you know, you have to hand your phone over at the checkpoints or whatever else. So, like, it's a pretty workaday mechanism, you know, when you are doing this at scale and, you know, where you're trying to do it, I guess, on a budget as well. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And I wonder how they're getting actually, like, do they need unlocked devices? Are they just beating people with, like, rubber hoses until they unlock the devices? Because I think with a lot of them, they would probably need them in an unlocked state to do this. Yeah, but once again, you, physical coercion, you know, either beating them or just pointing at their face in the case of face ID, right? I mean, they're probably, yeah. like, you know, I, I imagine this is not a high tech, but, you know, slightly more violent coercive mechanism for installing it yeah and in the case of like trying to infiltrate protest movements this works right because you're all of a sudden you're in all of those whatsapp group chats you know who's who it's it's very effective um so yeah that's a bit depressing but um you know this is this is just a fundamental principle right of of networks you know and i mean networks of people right like they once you you can you can infiltrate them right and that's how they're doing i mean and if you, you know, make the middle of the network too secure, if you end-to-end everything, well, where do people go? They have to go to the endpoints. Yeah, so, yeah that's natural, right. Natural consequence. Now, this one uh, I first read about uh, last week when I was editing Catalan's uh, podcast script for Risky Business News. And it's interesting, right? So it's based on uh, research from ESET where the Evasive Panda APT group has managed to somehow infect, selectively infect some users of QQ, which is a Tencent app, uh, an app made by the uh, the Chinese company Tencent. They've managed to somehow selectively infect them with their APT malware via the update process. And no one's really quite sure how, like whether or not this means that Chinese operators are up on the update servers or if it's a proper su- supply chain infiltration or if it's just person in the middle and maybe they got some key mat uh, somehow. And we don't really know how deficient the signing setup is for this code and whatnot. So we don't really know what's going on, but long story short, something bad is definitely happening to some users of Tencent's QQ app after they run an update or after it updates itself, I should say. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly, as you said, there's a bunch of scenarios by which that could happen. And, you know, inside China, the proliferation of app stores and, as you say, like the signing process, you know, who knows how that works, who knows where the key mat is. You know, you would kind of expect that, you know, the, the Chinese government could, if it wished to get in the middle of any of those things, then how that flows down to a particular APT crew or a group using it. Like, there's a lot of question marks in the middle of that cloud, but, like, both sides of that diagram start with, Chinese government can get those things and bad things are happening to people and we don't really know what's happening in the middle but you know it's, it's sort of beside the point other. right it's working. because yes. because they can do it and and you know yes. if they wanted to ring them up and say give us your signing key that's something they can do that's absolutely something they can do yeah anyway it's an interesting write-up uh you know obviously the details aren't complete there but I, yes. I did find it novel and interesting uh god speaking of novel and interesting AT&T <laughs> again we covered this in uh risky business news uh I think uh last Friday um AT&T email accounts were getting popped via their API. So someone's someone's inside AT&T basically minting like access tokens for user inboxes and then accessing those inboxes via an API uh, on the on the outside. Uh, but don't worry because PR at AT&T has a has a response for you to make you feel better, Adam. 
Yeah, they, they certainly do. They said, um, Kimberly, the AT&T spokesperson, said um, <clears throat> there was no intrusion into any system for this exploit. The bad actors used an API access. Which, yeah, but what, how did this access actually work? Was it the case that they were actually creating new API like tokens inside and then using them that way, or uh, as best I can understand, uh, their mail system uh, there's a mechanism for you to create uh, like app passwords. So, like if you want to use um, a non Microsoft email client with 365, you can create an app password that's you would use as your POP or IMAP protocol password that's separate from your account password that bypasses 2FA typically is the reason for it um, or you want to integrate with something else that can't 2FA um, so as far as I know the mail access is via normal mechanisms but using some internal thing to create app passwords for mail access and then AT&T has been you know, hacked on and off by all sorts of people over the years and there's kids in the forum saying hey we're inside here we've got VPN access into the org we can mint you a you know, mail access token for X dollars or whatever Yeah, right, else. right. So there, there are people actually in there fiddling something to make yes. this possible. Yeah, yeah, that's yes. what I was wondering. Yeah. But, that, you know, that doesn't exactly line up with the PR response, no. which is like, no, everything's fine. Um, <laughs> you know, so it's it's like a terrible response on multiple it's levels so because bad. it's, yes. <laughs> first of all, it's wrong. And second yeah. of all, like, even if they didn't have access internally, the fact that your users are getting owned um, yeah. via like, a deficiency in your service doesn't, you know, one by one, uh, doesn't actually make it better. No, um, I don't think any at and customer is going to be like, oh, well, that's fine then that Russians can sell access to my email box for five bucks or whatever. That's fine because it's via an API. Yeah, yeah. And it looks like um, <laughs> the people who are doing this are actually doing it to steal uh, cryptocurrency. Oh, of and course. a note, because we put AT&T with a, you know, ampersand in the headline of Friday's uh, uh, Risky Business News, um, it broke our CMS and broke our feed. <laughs> oh, uh, no. So that was down for like... Oh, a day and a half before anyone noticed. Oh, no. And uh, oh, no. yeah, so if you wonder why that podcast turned up late, uh, that's why. Whoops. So we got another one here from John Grieg, which is uh, CISA and the FDA uh, sounding the alarm on a really serious bug in something called the Illumina DNA uh, device, right? It's a series of devices that sequence DNA and whatnot, network connected. And there is a CVSS 10 in these things. There's no evidence that it's being exploited in the wild. But the bug is bad enough that they're, that they're raising the alarm. For me, this is a good excuse to talk about some research that I saw presented at KiwiCon, like, I don't know, maybe back in like 2008 by uh, someone who was actually your colleague at one time, Paul Craig, who did a deep dive on scientific software and did things like fuzzing, you know, file formats and stuff for scientific software. And the quality is so bad in that software when it comes to security that you know this is a fertile rich area uh to, to to look for bugs because scientific software tends to hold extremely valuable ip and uh yeah it's it's not something the qa is terrible right because it's low volume software that handles a lot of ip and uh you know this is very much in keeping um you know a cvss 10 in these devices is very much in keeping with what you'd expect out of scientific instruments right yeah, absolutely. I mean, software is super complicated normally, but doing it in a niche industry, in a niche environment, where, as you said, like, the volume is pretty low, you don't have the kind of QA resources, but you've absolutely got the complexity of every other you know piece of important software in the world. 
And, you know, the idea of, of picking a niche industry like that and then just going and fuzzing it, going and understanding the software, like the hard part usually is getting the software and figuring out like the context in which it's used, maybe DNA sequencing, that's relatively obvious. But, you know, we saw a Kiwi console once about like the same sort of approach, but for the movie production industry and like mm. niche file, video image, whatever formats that were being used with, you know, similar types of comedy bugs uh, or even forensic software. Like we saw, you know, we've seen research over the years where, you know, if someone images your disk and then loads it in end case or, you know, something similar, you know, that you can get to the point where you can code exec straight onto their forensics workstation, which is pretty cool. Um, so, yeah, it's a, you know, if you were a bug hunter for, a, you know, someone who didn't care so much about targeting, if someone who targeted based on vibes, uh, as we said uh, in our last week's show, I think it was, um, then, yeah, there is just so much avenue for interesting niche very important compromise and yeah i'm i'm curious as to why scissor is warning about this specifically when there's so many you know there's so many other bits of software and, and hardware and appliances and devices and so on um and you know I don't well know. i'm guessing it's a cvss 10 in environments that tend to attack uh, attract a bit of attention from attackers i would think that would be enough for the basis of a warning uh really <laughs> basically but uh yeah i mean I'd, I'd, I'd just say you know advice to any apt operators out there you know, start looking at scientific software, right? Start sending <laughs> yeah, compromise, you know, sending malicious uh, scientific uh, files uh, to, you know, fluid dynamics uh, software packages or whatever, <laughs> yeah. you know, like, there you go. Yeah, oil exploration or whatever else. Yeah, some, there's some good stuff uh, in those niche places. That is for sure. Uh, Apple and Google are apparently teaming up to tackle the issue of AirTag stalking, uh, which I didn't realize was still really a problem to be honest adam walk us through this why is there change required here uh so uh, what they're working on is uh, an, you know, a standard an itf uh standard which will describe uh what devices that are like bluetooth trackers or things that are bluetooth enabled and are capable of doing tracking even if it's not specifically a you know an air tag style device uh, a standard mechanism for them to kind of beacon out and say hey i'm here uh, and you know specify what's required of manufacturers and i think part of the goal here is to standardize and make this work well across android and ios you know across a range of devices you know if you're not all in on the apple ecosystem then you know the the, the tracking detecting things that are you know have been used to track you is still a little bit patchy so yeah. that's the end goal here is just to kind of standardize expectations for vendors so it's about into yeah getting them all on the same page makes a lot of sense there i mean i did see a twitter thread recently where someone managed to uh set up tracking on like their partners and this was just a test like it wasn't done in a malicious content context but they grabbed like their partner's airpod and tracked it through their phone and their partner didn't even get an alert or whatever you know so there's still some work to do here isn't there yeah, yeah, absolutely, right? I mean, this is a relatively new, you know, kind of set of problems. And I mean, even even if you are, I mean, I like, for example, I've got uh, some secondhand AirPods and occasionally they will just go into like, oh, you're being stalked or they will tell the previous owner that I'm stalking them or whatever else, even though it's <laughs> like they've been like factory reset and, and registered on a different iCloud and blah, 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 blah. So there's, you know, there's some edge cases still for sure. Yeah. Brian Krebs has an interesting story up here about how... <laughs> These things called uh, Salesforce community uh, websites, right? So Salesforce community like helps government websites and whatnot. And you can spin them up real easy. And look, Salesforce stuff is great for this sort of thing. But unfortunately, there's an option where you can allow like guest users to just, you know, admin the app. And uh, <laughs> people have been, you know, leaving that box checked or checking that box or whatever. And 
it just means that these Salesforce community um, uh, sites are just leaking data left, right, and center. And he's done a really interesting write up of this. Yeah, I mean, there's a you know, whenever you're setting up stuff in the cloud, there's always a lot of things to click, and you got to click them all right. Uh, and you know, pl- platform like Salesforce, like there is a lot of things to click on. <laughs> um, and you know, if you're reviewing Salesforce apps, like knowing that you have to check these things. You know, it just takes time, right? I mean, to build the methodologies and understand what you have to look for. And we spun up so many cloud things during the pandemic. Yeah. Um, and a lot of them did get spun up, you know, without the degree of care and oversight that perhaps you would have had, you know, in normal times. But, you know, perhaps that was the right trade-off for, for many organizations. But yeah, this is a, a good reminder that all those things you did spin up, you know, maybe it's worth going back and making sure that you understand the state that they're in. And yeah. I was this one reminded me of the Microsoft Bing... Um, you know, like anyone yeah, yeah, off to Azure, Azure like an admin thing kind of thing. thing. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. that kind of reminded me of that. I mean, I, 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 at the time, I remember us saying, like, a lot of stuff's going to get built very quickly and mistakes yes. will be made. And, you know, that is how it played out. If anything, I'm surprised it wasn't worse. Yes. Yeah, me too. Absolutely. I'm, I'm amazed how much stuff we didn't mess up as an industry <laughs> for once. Yeah. Uh, this one's just hilarious. Hang on. <laughs> uh, I need the law and order button for this. Um, you so this... This guy, Gary Harmon, he's a he's the brother of the guy who got imprisoned for operating the Helix cryptocurrency mixer. He has been jailed for stealing 712 Bitcoin. But what's funny is they were like his brother's Bitcoins that were seized by US authorities. And I think he had like he was able to recover the key mat that he needed to move those coins. So he he moved them after they were seized and he got caught and now he's in prison. So I mean, cheeky, nice try, but uh, yeah, it doesn't really help when you're stealing, you know, Bitcoin from the feds. It doesn't. It doesn't yeah. after they've seized it. It's not not yeah, a good idea. Yeah. Not a good idea. Yeah, like the uh, the uh, original guy, the brother Larry Harmon, uh, had his Bitcoins in a hardware wallet of some sort, and then Gary, the brother, figured out the seed phrase to recreate the key mat. So it had been seized, but he also was able to then get the key mat uh, himself. And then actually, funny enough, put it through a bunch of, you know, a bunch of mixes. Yeah. Uh, which did not fool the feds, it seems, when uh, he started spending it all on, uh, you know. Whatever. Whatever you do. Whatever else, yes. <laughs> uh, there's a picture in the story of him covered in a pile of money. And apparently he had no job and no fixed abode. And then all of a sudden, you know, he had luxury cars and, uh, yeah, not, not the smartest. Not the sharpest tool in the shed, as we exactly, would say. Exactly, yes. Yeah. And Adam, we have learned that the takedown of the monopoly market in December 2021 was indeed a uh, law enforcement uh, action and something like 300 people uh, have been arrested since then as a result of this takedown and that's finally been confirmed. Yes, it looks like it was the German authorities that were behind it and I guess it's taken them a while to sift through all of the logs and and whatever else and piece together the things and yeah, a bunch of people arrested including 150 in the US Uh, and any time these markets get shut down there's just such a long tail of investigations and people to chase down and wherever the people go wherever the next marketplace is there's all of the opportunities that gets you so yeah, these things they give and keep on giving yeah, they called the operation uh, Spector with T-O-R, which I thought was actually quite cool. <laughs> That's some high comedy there, yes. <laughs> they seized 117 firearms, 850 kilograms of drugs, which included 64 kilograms of fentanyl uh, or fentanyl-laced narcotics. So that's a little bit sneaky there. Is it fentanyl or does it just have a little bit of fentanyl in it? Because 64 <laughs> kilograms of fentanyl. <laughs> that's a lot of fentanyl. That's yeah. a lot of fentanyl, yeah. Uh, so yeah, you know, um, that was a big one. That was a big one. And uh, just a regular reminder that ransomware and uh, data ransom people are scum. Kevin Collier's got a report here for 
NBC News uh, looking at the breach at the Minneapolis uh, public schools. Uh, the data leaked has included stuff like psyche evals on kids, you know, and uh, descriptions of their behavior and stuff. So just, to, yeah, as I say, just your regular reminder that these people are scum. What else have we got? We've got a report here from Cybersecurity Dive which has gone over Kevin Mandia's presentation to RSA where he's talked about his top seven tips for cyber. So it's a Kevin Mandia listicle and it's the reason it's in is because it's really good. Like his <laughs> advice, not surprisingly, uh, is really good. I suppose he does know a thing or two about, uh, you know, getting hacked or not getting hacked. And, <laughs> yeah. uh, <you> know, <laughs> given that Mandian has, uh, well, only, they said only once they've been hacked and that, of course, was, was SolarWinds, which they yeah. did good work in digging through. Anyway, uh, he makes the point to that institutional knowledge for defenders is a thing that attackers don't have and is one of the things you can use to kind of leverage because you know your environment better than they do and you have a longer you know longer time to work with it uh, before the attackers show up which is you know it's a, a point very much worth you know um reiterating to people because as attackers we spend so long rummaging in your sharepoint you know trying to learn whatever you know uh, coffins or skeletons buried in your coffins or whatever um and you you already have all that stuff so that's a, a good reminder plus of course things like honey pots well this is uh, what i like about it is, is there's is there's it's a it's a nice mix between the sort of macro you know managerial stuff and actually well you should definitely use multi-factor auth everywhere uh you should use canaries or honey pots inside to get really good you know that's number three on his list which i thought yeah. was pretty cool yeah. so basically it's it's just a really good um you know a uh, bunch of advice there so we've linked through to that in this week's show notes and Adam, uh, I've signed up for yet another social media platform over the last week, and I just wanted to quickly mention it. Uh, Blue Sky is really cool. So look, I, I the thing that I really liked about Mastodon when I signed up is the federation side of it, because I could see that, you know, turning uh, social media like Twitter, uh, you know, into something more like SMTP, which is like a federated protocol, because SMTP is a great example of that. You know, this is a good idea. Unfortunately, Mastodon is just you know, the people who maintain it are just so dead against giving it Twitter-like features like search and quote tweeting and whatnot that I'm not really that bullish on Mastodon anymore. I think that the Federation stuff, I'm definitely bullish on that. Not so much on Mastodon itself. Blue Sky, which was actually spun out of Twitter around 2019 with the goal of creating a protocol that Twitter would eventually use. And now, of course, it's like completely separate to Twitter and kind of competing with it. Um, Blue Sky, I'm, I'm, I'm on there. There's something like, I think when I, when I first got in, there's something only like 50,000 users or whatever, but it's got all of the Twitter-like functionality and all the shit posters are there and it's a great time for now at least. And it is also federated, which means that, you know, federation really solves a lot of these moderation challenges where you can go to an instance that moderates the way that you like things to be moderated uh, and whatnot. And I just think, I'm, I think I've only been in there a few days, but it shows a great deal, uh, a great deal of promise. And I just think it's really funny that what we might see is people leaving for, you know, uh, blue sky instances from Twitter and then Twitter kind of just evolves into Gab. And I wonder what that's going to mean for their <laughs> whole argument about free speech because I don't think what they wanted was free speech. I think what they wanted was a platform to, to espouse their views and they wanted an audience and that's essentially what they got with Twitter. And I think that audience is just going to bleed away, right? So I think this has been a... This is going to be a very interesting chapter in the, you know, free speech on the internet discourse. Let's put it that way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it has been the times of the social media wars uh, and specifically, you know, Mastodon, Twitter, the, the way things have changed in the last little while. Yeah, definitely an interesting time for the internet. Um, I do believe the Mastodon devs have decided that quote toots are a thing now. I think I saw a post maybe even yesterday. 
But the uh, culture, we, the culture in Macedon is a bit humorless. Well, I, I have not tried Blue Sky yet, so maybe I'll have to go stick my nose in and see uh, who's around. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think that like the federation and the way of picking a you know a, a community that matches how you feel to deal with the moderation that has certainly you know Macedon won me over with that approach as well. But as you say, it can be a little bit. Uh, a little bit, little bit too free software foundation over there sometimes. Yeah, it's a, it's got the Stallman vibes, right? A little bit of yeah, yeah. Yeah, Blue Sky doesn't have that uh, yet, right? And it's early days, and let's see what happens when the awful people turn up, which they yes, will. Of course. Um, but let's see if the mods just throw them into the sun, and you know, I think they probably <laughs> will, because people are trying to get away from. The awful people, right? Like that yes. is why uh, we're seeing a lot of this. Uh, that's what's driving a lot of this activity. Anyway, I just thought, you know, it's not a cybersecurity thing. I just thought I would report here what I have found on Blue Sky. Uh, so far, so good. Uh, but Adam, that's it for the week's news. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, it's been a pleasure to chat to you, my friend, and we'll do it all again next week. Yeah, thanks, Pat. I will talk to you then. That was CyberCX's Adam Boileau there with a look at the week's security news. It is time to talk to Andrew Morris now. He's the chief executive and founder of Grey Noise Intelligence. And you can head to greynoise.io right now, plug an IP into their website and learn all sorts of fabulous things like, is this IP doing mass scanning and exploitation? What type of mass scanning or exploitation is it doing and which parts of the internet? Is it hitting? So Grey Noise customers use this service to figure out if something is just hitting them or if it's hitting everyone. And now they're taking this thing a step further. So we've already spoken to Andrew uh, previously on the show about how they've thrown together like a honeypot data center, like a honey farm. And they can port forward from their sensor networks into that center and it's all very flexible and responsive and whatnot. Uh, but now they're going to make those forwarding sensors available, well, those forwarding boxes, I guess you'd call them, uh, they're going to make them available to customers. And here's Andrew telling you all why someone would want to actually use one of these things. Yeah. So, okay. Like in no particular order, the reasons why somebody would deploy a gray noise sensor are number one, uh, you want to skip the amount of hoops that you're jumping through in order to figure out who's hitting you specifically from a targeting perspective. So a prioritization perspective, you want to know, I, I, instead of looking at all of these alerts that are hitting my network, I want to look at just the ones that are hitting me specifically, but you don't want to do that with, by jumping through a ton of SIM enrichment hoops and a bunch of like log correct, log collection and SIM enrichment hoops. That's kind of number one. So be like, Hey, just tell me about the, the things, the IPs that are hitting me specifically. So the number two would be forgetting about the kind of where it's coming from and instead saying, actually, I just want to know about only net new interesting payloads that are actually hitting my network. So have basically like packs of network traffic that are a certain amount of distance far. There's a net new blob of data that started hitting my perimeter. And that's usually, I mean, that's not something that happens often with like, you know, legitimate network software use, right? It's usually going to be pretty similar stuff. And so, um, and so that'd be kind of, uh, sort of number two, there are other reasons like, Hey, some people just want to have access to some people want to give data back to gray noise because they've been free users for a very long time. That's great, but we can't exactly, you know, build a, build a, build a business around that per se. Um, and then well, some just, people just are just the first, want... the first use case is such a gray noise. It's very case, gray right? noisy. It's, yeah, very, it's gray very gray, noisy. gray noisy, which is if you deploy it on the edge and someone's having a go at it. But it's, you know, it's communicating with your back end and it's like, no, no, this is just you. You know, someone right. is just hitting you with this. This isn't some mass scanning activity. 
And that, right. that gives you an indication that something's up, right? That's right. Which is, okay, and so for what it's worth, this is something that Canary does better than anybody else in the world right now, which is just kind of like the super duper high fidelity, this thing is happening in a place that you need to care right but now. That's, but that's not on the internet. You know, I mean, that's, that's the right, that's, exactly. that's the value of a canary is like it's it's that's on right. the inside, so no one should be touching that. That's Where right. this gets and interesting, so, though, is like there's no point like putting something on the internet that's going to get attacked because it's always going to get attacked. It's just right. yeah, it's just the gray noisy bit, which is you know you can put on something that looks juicy. Like I think what did you say a micro tick router? Yeah, exactly. So yeah, you can, so you can spin something up that that's a micro tick router. Uh, uh, in some gray noise data center somewhere and you're doing your magic port forwarding thing and uh-huh. then if someone's trying to go after that, but that payload's not being seen anywhere else, that's kind of useful information. Exactly. So it's kind of like racking and stacking like the net useful stuff just for you, but without having to jump through nearly as many hoops as you'd have to jump through in using gray noise before. Just doing a lot less data munging. Um, and the things uh, kind of crossover that I'm making in this case is that to your point, um, it's just really, really hard to have high fidelity internet facing alerts kind of in general is we're trying to kind of get that, you know, get at that by using everybody else's, uh, using the data comparatively to what we're seeing in a bunch of other places. Another reason might just end up being that somebody wants to download a PCAP of, of, a, of an exploit that's hitting their network, or they might want to download all of the PCAPs of exploits that are hitting their networks or whatever. So they can actually test their network detections. And they can say like, okay, cool. Am I detecting this everywhere? Like, does my signature work for this? Um, is I like, do I need to develop a net new one for something that's happening to me elsewhere that just came out? And I don't want to sit around and wait for my vendor to be able to push a thing out for me because the clock is ticking on some of these things. So these are some of the reasons why somebody would want to run I, a gray noise sensor on their perimeter. Can I tell you what I'd do with it? Tell me what you'd do with it. I'd make an exchange. Oh, yeah. Yep. I'd make an Tell exchange, me. I'd throw it yep. out there on the internet and see if I did that on my own, just as right. a honeypot, that's going to be uh-huh. absolutely useless because it's going to be throwing alerts at me every 10 seconds because uh-huh. everybody's mass scanning for exchange every 10 uh-huh. seconds, right? So, so that's useless. But if I throw an exchange box out there that only alerts me when someone's hitting it and none of the other exchange boxes out, on, out there on the internet, that is something I want to know about. Yeah, Exactly. Because a human attacker, a human attacker, if they're footprinting you and they see exchange, they're going after that for sure. That's right. And you might want to, I mean, depending on, depending on what kind of um, company you are, you might want to know when people are credential stuffing that thing. You might want to know when people attempt to use any kind of valid usernames or passwords against that. You might want to link things like that together. And it's going to take time to be able to do that kind of stuff. But the, there's always been this set of trade-offs that have to be made architecturally where you either have to give on. So I'm talking about just building honeypots in general, right? Taking a step back, there've always been some architectural sort of trade-offs that you've always had to make throughout the history of all of the honeypot products or deception products that we have on the market. And you're either going to be making a serious security trade-off where you would have been saying like, yeah, this is like an actual system, but if it gets hacked, it gets hacked. And like, you got to deal with that. Or it's a, it's a resource constraint one where it's kind of like, you know, yeah, we we're we can only run so many of these because we only have so much computing, extra computing power, or extra hardware or whatever. Or it's an actual programmability trade-off where you're saying, yeah, this is my fake honeypot over here, but it's not running any actual software. It's just running sockets that are, you know, dumping well, out web pages. Is... It's not running exchange. Yeah. And th- th- so this in addition to that, there's the problem of like who has time for this sort of thing, you know? 
Right. And all of these are bad options, by yeah. the way. Everyone that I just listed out sucks because you're still just like, okay, well, it's still going to take me five hours to deploy something that, like, you know, isn't that useful. So all of this is just to say that, like, in thinking about this really as honestly as we really could, we're like, well, this way sucks. This way sucks. We've now deployed, I literally don't know how many honeypots we've deployed at Cranoise because we have thousands of them and they go up and down constantly. Um, and there's people that are fingerprinting us now that are like, they're, they're trying to fingerprint us and then, and then like pipe it out to like web services and stuff to, to kind of cause us sort of pain and frustration, which means we just have to rotate our sensors even faster. So the, we we're putting things up at such an insane scale. There's just a couple of things that we've sort of learned along the way that are just how to make it dumb easy. And, uh, yeah. And like, I don't know, more than anything is like do as little as possible. Just it's VPN gateway and IP tables and, and <laughs> yeah, back off yeah. everything else. I mean, you don't want to mess around <laughs> with anything else. I just think it's funny though, that like, you know, for so long, everyone was messing around with internet honey, uh, internet facing honeypots, but like the one thing that could actually make them useful is if it was just one company doing it for everybody, <laughs> you know, because yeah. like one, one honeypot is kind of useless, but a lot of honeypots all reporting to the same place, kind of not so useless. I will die on this hill. Uh, Norse almost got it exactly right, yeah, but they right. got it. They got it exactly wrong. And they're obviously the, the butt of a lot of jokes now, but they were like this close. You guys can't see me at home <laughs> right now, but with my hand there, my fingers are real close together. They were so close. And then they were exactly wrong. Yeah. Right. And there's because they, they and, focus too much on pew pew map and not enough. They focus too much on pew yeah. pew map and they weren't transparent enough about what the data was that they were collecting, and where they were collecting it from. And just saying like, dude, just say it. They're just flow logs. Say they're flow logs of IPs that are hitting stuff that you can control like that's still useful it's okay it might seem less sexy but that data is actually wildly useful just be transparent about what it is mm -mm. so um i gotta ask like you know you, you this is this is being released in july right like for for general yeah. availability but not for general availability my product team would murder me if they heard me say that but we are starting to roll it out to people uh, outside okay, so of not the everyone all at once in July. Right? Not everybody because... all at once. Yeah, 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 that's right. yeah, yeah, yeah. But 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 in the in classic gray noise terms, what that means is general availability for us would be like you just have to email somebody, and we'll probably just turn it on. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So you've already got some people messing around with this stuff, though. What's that experience been like? Like, what have people actually been able to do with it so far? What's been the stuff that's that that's turned out to be useful versus the stuff that's not turned out to be useful? I'm just sort of curious to to know how people have gone with this from a you know science project perspective because that's kind of what this is at this point. So um, nobody outside of the organization has deployed stuff yet, and so we still have we're still doing a lot there internally. Though there have been a number of Windows vulnerabilities that have come out, um, and Microsoft and just Microsoft vulnerabilities that would have just been impossible for us to have detection on, and so. We'll just spin up a Windows box, make the configuration change or unpatch, and then we'll point a thousand things at it or whatever. And we're like, okay, sick. Like we've got coverage on this vulnerability now. Like that would have taken us a really long time to do otherwise. Um, that's been the sort of number one thing. It's the classic. The thing that, one of the things that is incredibly but challenging. But that's your internal use case for having this flexible, you know, honey. Exactly. Redirection. Right. Stuff, just makes right? us, yeah, yeah, yeah. just makes us better at what we already do. The One of the more bizarre things that, that I'm finding right now is that just systems are just so chatty and we're actually running real systems now. So now we have to care about all of the legitimate, um, all of the legitimate, basically, basically process creates, file creates, network creates on uh, VMs and containers and embedded systems. And uh, you would be floored by the number of um, 
just the amount, the insane amount of behaviors that we have to start cataloging on this stuff to try to find when things outside of that occur. So when the deltas happen, right? Because what what I'm the most keen on, and this is something I've been doing a little bit with our research team, is um, we'll we'll have we'll roll through you know the top ten thousand Docker containers, right? And we'll run every single one of them in a bunch of different places. We'll just look to see what happens, right? Like what they actually what what the what behaviors they exhibit. Because if all of a sudden you know you're running, uh, I don't know, let's some word version of WordPress. I'm just making this up, but some version of WordPress. And for some reason, you notice that like every time you run that version of WordPress, there's some new process create that happens that doesn't happen uh, any other time. And it starts to get inc- way more interesting when you notice that it only happens in certain places. So it gets it gets vastly complicated very quickly, but it's a really good, it's like an end date factory. It's really cool. It's just a real, it's a really good way to just shake out end days on the internet and, and get PCAPs of them and do kind of whatever you want with them. It's really neat. Now, another use case you mentioned was exploit capture. You had an interesting example uh, of where you might use that uh, when we were yeah. talking before we started recording. Tell, tell, yeah, tell yeah, them yeah. It's, share. This, it's sharing time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll, do, I'll do what I can. I always, I'm going to get, I don't want to get in trouble. Um, there's uh, like, so there was a case in Ukraine where we were just, we were helping some folks out and um, there was somebody getting into, there was an actor getting into the, uh, their network over and over and over again. And, um, and every time they would find him, they would get him out. And then, um, and then they were back in again and they didn't know how. And uh, the way that they ended up figuring it out was uh, just, or something that we did to help was give them some, some prehistoric gray noise sensors. This was a while ago and it was before they were uh, good. Uh, or supposed to be user facing and all they did was like hoover in all of the network traffic that was touching them and compare it to what we were seeing everywhere else and then hand out all the deltas and what the what the customer found is that it was just it was a net unique blob of traffic that was hitting them in lots of different parts of their perimeter and one of those net unique blobs was was an, an exploit for a piece of software that they didn't even know um, was a thing and so they were able to then extract that and build a detection for that and build a functionally a rule uh, in between then and when they actually had the proper patch that they needed to to be up to date and it was just it was a cool example of being able to kind of like forward collect some telemetry to cover a base that you otherwise just didn't really have covered there was no other way that they really would have been able to get that traffic and so that's interesting on a one-off basis, but from my perspective, I'm like, yeah, what if what if that was just happening all the time? Well, but I what mean, that's, the, that's the, kind of why I wanted you to mention it as an example, right? Is because, you know, it's well and good. I mean, you know, the first use case I think is, you know, it's compelling enough, right? Which is that you can, which is that you can, um, you know, know if something's unique to you. When you start uh-huh. talking about using honeypots to do exploit capture and stuff, like a lot of people uh-huh. have been around for a long time, their eyes are gonna roll pretty hard at that. But uh-huh. what I like about that example you just gave is like, here's a case where you actually did that in an, in an applied sense and it worked, it works. right? And it actually it solves the problem. So, it works. you know, do you find though that you do, you know, speak to some crusties, right? Uh, who who get a little bit upset that you're playing around with honeypots again and say, oh, it's dead. It's dead technology. What are you doing, Andrew? Do you get a bit of that? No, no. Um, well, yes. Uh, so we get a lot of, <laughs> right? We get a lot of, why would anyone do this when insert solution that nobody has used for years is a thing and um you know and i I have to kind of like hold my tongue of like yeah well you know there's there's not there are problems with that that solution doesn't cater to everything what we find kind of what i find a lot is um the the number one thing that'll happen before that even is like people thinking that we scan the internet 
and I have to correct that. But no, I mean, there'll be a lot of people that'll reference like a lot of good stuff that's kind of out there that people have been using for a long time. HoneyNet Project, a lot of other open, uh, obviously the Internet Storm Center, stuff like how is this different from the Internet Storm Center? How is it different from these other things? Um, that well, happens from time deeper, to time. As, as, as far as I understand it, right? From, from yeah, that's the right. sort of I stuff mean, they the, do. Like it's just, it just captures a lot more That's the biggest reason. Yeah, yeah. That's the biggest reason. So it's like at the at the end of the day, um, I'm at least not aware of any other um, honeypot-ish companies where there's analysts that are that are doing that are looking at the data and tagging it in any capacity at all um or where there's data guarantees or slas of like how much data or how often it's going to be up or that they're updated to be able to capture details on vulnerabilities that are less than 10 years old maybe right ideally something from <laughs> like this week right Shade. like because <laughs> you need to know you need to know like when it matters right and so yeah. like um so you just there the i the short answer to your question is yes, but it's always, it can be sometimes challenging as like an absolute mega nerd on this stuff to not, like I want to claw my eyes out when somebody's like, how is this not different than this other little honeypot thing? And I'm like, there's so many reasons. Like this, yeah, yeah, how yeah, much yeah, time yeah, yeah. you got? I have, I have like, we're moving like 800 million messages a day and we have like all these, like, you know, whatever, but nobody cares. So I just, I just try to like reiterate like, well, we have kind of like the best track record of, tracking these vulnerabilities like before they matter we we track against CISA right it's like a fun little friendly it's it's a friendly competition right this is we were partnered with CISA well you track like track are you tracking against Kev Kev yeah and so yeah, we right. try to we try to beat Kev we try to beat Kev as often as we can 60% of the time quantifiably we're beating Kev right now yeah but we're actually useless at tracking anything that isn't remote code execution network-based vulnerability like obviously I can't track client email. side i can't track local yeah, yeah, privilege yeah, yeah, escalation yeah, yeah. yeah i can't track email whatever email but i can track remote code execution and there's like a load of that so um we are very good at well, that well you can good. also track you can also track uh brute forcing and stuff like that too right? yeah that's so, right credential yeah. stuffing and some misconfiguration stuff we are getting pretty good at getting pretty consistent same day coverage now yeah where it where we will learn of a vuln and then as soon as we have we will do everything that we can internally to figure out what the exploit's going to look like on the wire. We'll fuzz. We will patch diff. We will do all but develop the the the, the ex write the exploit ourselves uh, to try to figure out exactly what it's going to look like. We'll we'll go through all of our community members like a spy network to try to find anybody who has a POC. A lot of the time, we find somebody who does, and then we look at that on the wire. And we will retro look at it from all of our data to just make sure that we've never seen it show up before uh, the the rest of the world knew about it. That has happened, and uh, and then there and then essentially we'll we'll fingerprint we'll make the thing look like whatever it is that we need it to look like. So sure, it needs to be a JBoss whatever five point whatever, and then we and then we throw it all out there, and then and then we're at the mercy of the world. We have coverage yeah. now, right? But we we're at the mercy of the world of when it starts getting. Um, you know, zip zapped over. And so that's part of the reason why I'm so stoked about customer facing sensors, because one of the settings that I'm really pushing for in this is for us to at least give the user the option to say, actually, just let gray noise manage this thing for me, like what it actually looks like, like any and, and specifically for kind of like shit hitting the fan mode where it's like, hey, there's a new vulnerability. And we just, everybody cares about that vulnerability. Yeah, so there make them all look like exchange boxes because of that latest exchange bug that just- Exactly, right? Yeah. So like there is there is a universe where we want the user to be able to say like, you know, I want to manage this thing 99% of the time, but hey, you're like a, noise, you're feel like free to take the reins. in the wild exploit grabbing snitch. 
You know what I mean? That's exactly right. As soon as right. it hits the wild, man, That's right. you're going to be snitching. That's right. That's exactly right. Don't yeah, I God, I hate that. Snitches, hate that. Andrew. Hate that word, man. Like, we <laughs> we really like to pick literally any other word. <laughs> All right, man. I'll, I'll, I'll have a think about it. I'll put my thinking cap on and I'll come back to you. But Andrew Morris, always a pleasure to chat to you, my friend. And uh, I'll catch you soon. <laughs> Patrick, this is a blast. Thanks so much for having me. That was Andrew Morris from Grey Noise there. Big thanks to him for that. And uh, yeah, you can head to greynoise.io and, uh, you know, plug in a few IPs right now for free. Uh, but if you want the API access, you're going to need to give them some money. Uh, but that is it for today's podcast. I do hope you've enjoyed it. Until next time, I've been Patrick Gray. Cheers.